And those of you who are members here, here goes this thing again. Um, I doubt that you realize how blessed you really are. You have such a great church here and uh, such a wonderful legacy and heritage. I believe I'm going to be back, barring the rapture happening, which I pray for every day, but I believe I'm going to be back in July for the camp. Which year is this camp? Someone tell me. Anybody remember? How many years? Over 30? 30 something? Unbelievable. What a legacy. What a tremendous ministry. You did your work well, Mike. Yeah, I know you had a lot of help, but you did your work well. Thank God. You have a marvelous, marvelous group here. Um, I actually moved ahead in our last session because when I got about halfway through and I saw people going, <clears throat> it made me want to go. So I moved ahead and we actually covered two classes in one. I'll let you go back and dig out the notes. But sometimes <clears throat> I think it's helpful for us to have the opportunity to ask some questions, and I have had several uh, asked in the during the breaks. I don't know if any of you want to uh, bring those up again, but I thought what we do this session is just reflect on where we've come from, at least as far as the teaching is concerned, and uh, what happens after these things. Well, it depends on where you are in history. I mean, everything that happens once the rapture happens, there's something that's going to happen after. And when the second advent comes, there's something that's going to happen after. And when the final judgment comes, there's something that's coming after. And what's coming after is new heavens and a new earth. And I'm not going to get into that because that's our final study tomorrow. I do realize that there are many, many passages that we didn't have time. I mean, I was barely able to squeeze. I tried to do it just in the most simple terms and using the most simple passages, and I could barely squeeze it all in because it's just such a, such a wide scope of history and such a lot of uh, Scripture. So at any rate, there you have it. I'm going to open the floor up for anyone that may have questions, and I will do my very best uh, to answer. And uh, Christopher or Mike may want to jump in or uh, help me out on any answers. If you have answers, feel free. But let's, uh, let's just throw the floor open. And if there are no questions, guess what? We get done early and then you can go and actually lay down and take a nap. And I might too. Question, yes, sir. Brought into the world that their name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. They go throughout the entire life and they have not received Christ or in the Old Testament general revelation or special revelation that their name is then blotted out. Okay, this uh, this is there there are a couple of different I don't know if this thing's even working, but there are a couple of different views on this. Uh, there are those that hold that Book of Life and Lamb's Book of Life are both the same. I'm inclined to look at it in a second view. The Lamb's Book of Life contains the names of those who have believed 
the book of life contains the names of the living. So when Moses, for example, in Exodus 32 said to God, if you're not going to forgive Israel, blot my name out of your book. I don't believe that he was asking to be cast out of eternity or cast into uh, hell. I think he was saying, kill me. If, if, you know, if, if you're not going to forgive the, this people, uh, just blot me out of your book. But there are those who hold that uh, when people are born, their name is automatically put in the Lamb's book of life because he died for all. There certainly wouldn't be anything uh, opposing that except that the fact that they've not made a personal decision to trust in him. So. Yes. Yeah, I would argue that everyone is born with a body and a soul. I think the spirit is the new creation because we're spiritually dead. And again, you know, some of these things are, they're fun to discuss. Uh, I don't, I rarely fight much anymore with people because if I can tell that their mind is made up, why argue? Go your way. Peace be to you. Meet you in eternity and we'll all know. But, you know, there, there are areas where if I'm sitting around with guys like Christopher and, and Jed and, you know, fellow pastors, uh, it's always fun to bat things around and, and uh, some things are may be clear to one person in one way, but someone else thinks it's just as equally clear in the other. But, yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to think the book of life is the book of the living, and when they die without Christ, their name is blotted out of the book of the living. Any additions to that from any of you guys? Yes. Oh, so uh, if you want, I'd be happy to do that. What great hands I have. Uh, go ahead. So it talks about them being cast out into outer darkness. So are they saying, what are these people saying? That not believers are going to be cast into outer darkness, they're not going to join again? <clears throat> One moment here. <clears throat> if everybody will, some of you are not familiar with this teaching, turn with me to Matthew 8. So the question has, has regard to the outer darkness and people being cast out of the marriage supper. By the way, if you're interested, I have a whole series on the outer darkness teaching. I would encourage you to go and listen to it. If you're not familiar, if this is something new to you, uh, you might want to check it out. So in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says, uh, this is when the uh, centurion uh, said, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Verse 8, just say the word. My servant will be healed. He's obviously Gentile. I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go and he goes and another come and he comes to my slave, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. 
I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's what the false doctrine of outer darkness teaches. Those are not unbelievers. Those are unfaithful believers. You say, how in the world did they get that? Well, I ask the same question. It's a terrible um, abuse of Scripture. Uh, hang on to that in your head while you turn to Matthew 22. So in Matthew 22, you have a story where Jesus actually defines election. And he tells a story, and I'll just tell it to you, that a king is going to have a wedding feast for his son. He sends his servants out. They go out into the kingdom, into the king's people, inviting them to come in, come to the wedding feast. One makes this excuse. Another makes a different excuse. The servants come back and they say, no one's willing to come. The analogy, of course, is the nation of Israel. So he gets other servants and sends them out in the highways and the byways, and they get the weak, the lame, the broken, so on and so forth. They bring them in, and the wedding feast is filled. From that point, it says in verse 10, the slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, evil and good. The wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once again, they take the position that this guy had to be a believer and that as a believer, because he didn't have the wedding dress, meaning he didn't measure up, he wasn't good enough, he got thrown into outer darkness. From this, they take the position that if you're not a super faithful believer, you don't get to attend the wedding feast in the kingdom. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, there are a whole bunch of them. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, the three references to outer darkness are all mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, which was written to the Jews, was written to present Christ as the, the awaited Messiah, and also as a repudiation and rebuke of the nation, if you will, an indictment of the nation for rejecting their Savior. How could a guy come into the wedding hall and be called friend and not have on wedding clothes? Did you know that that was something that Jesus actually anticipated and it actually happened? You remember? In the upper room... They were celebrating the wedding feast. That was the beginning of the celebration of the wedding feast. And there was a guy there that didn't have a wedding garment. And his name was Judas. And you'll remember that when Judas betrayed Jesus, he used that very term, friend. You'll also remember that as this guy was cast out of the wedding feast, Jesus didn't start the feast until first he had cast Judas out of the room. There's a whole lot of parallel that illustrates what he's talking about here has nothing to do with believers being thrown out, has nothing to do with believers being in outer darkness whatsoever. It's a parable to illustrate a principle. If you go to Matthew 25, 30, 
You remember the parable of the talents? One receives 10, one receives five, one receives one. The guy with 10 multiplies it by 10. The one of five multiplies it by five. The one with one does nothing. In verse 24, the one who had received the one talent came and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Is that your opinion of your Lord? I don't think so. I was afraid and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have had received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents for to everyone who has more should be given and he will have an abundance from the one who does not have. Even what he has shall be taken away. Throw out the worst of the slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How in the world do we interpret this? The guys that believe in outer darkness say since he was a servant, he had to be a believer. Right? Let's think our way through this for a minute. Who is the Gospel of Matthew written to? It's written to the nation of Israel. What was the nation of Israel called? The chosen people. How many in Israel were part of the chosen people? Every single one. How many of them had been redeemed by a lamb? Every male that breaks the womb shall be redeemed by a lamb. Why? Because they are to be a servant to God. Every Jewish person was a part of that covenant. And when you look at it from that standpoint, it makes it very clear. All three of them were his servants. Two of them took advantage of it and utilized the grace that had been given to them. One of them had the grace given and chose not to utilize it. And it's equivalent to being an unbeliever. And what happens to unbelievers? They get cast into outer darkness and there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth has nothing whatever to do with the church. The church is not in, there's only one place church is found in Matthew, and that's in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, but he's looking future. You have to approach this from the mindset of age of Israel, Jewish dispensation, law of Moses, old covenant, and then all of it makes sense. That answer the question. It, again, if you're interested, I have a whole weekend that I spent on outer darkness. I, I don't have time to, to deal with all of it, but it was convincing enough that a lot of people that believed in the outer darkness chose not to believe in the outer darkness. And the tragedy with the outer darkness teaching is that a lot of people who formerly were Believers like you and I have fallen for it and gone into it. It's a very discouraging doctrine. Let me ask you, just within your own mind, if you believe that there was a possibility, if you had not been faithful enough that you would end up in outer darkness, how many of you think you would be there? I'd raise my hand right off the bat because I deserve nothing better. That's not the grace of God. So get this. Here's one for you. According to the outer darkness, I love how this works. 
Here we are, church age. That's you, believe it or not. You are in Christ. In Christ is the key phrase that should always cue us into church age and church age doctrine. It is what we refer to as positional truth. According to Colossians 3, 1 through 4, where are you now? Since then you have been raised up with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Do not set your affection on the earth or the things that are on the earth. Set your affection above where Christ is seated. Here is the throne of God. Here is Christ seated in the mind of God. That's where you are. Ephesians 1.6, accepted in the beloved. Right? You are in him. Salvation, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, is he made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That's where we are. Now get this. Once the rapture and the bema happens, you're unseated and put in outer darkness. So get this. What an what a amazing picture. While we're here and can't really experience what it means to be there, we're there. But as soon as life on this earth is over and the rapture takes place and we're raised with Christ where we can experience everything that it means, now you don't get it, you get sent here. That sound like God to you? Is, there's a very interesting thing about false doctrine. It always makes God look more like the devil. Stop and think about that. I was just referring to someone that all of you know by name. I won't use it since I'm being recorded. Made a statement. Our pastor actually used it in his uh, message in our church recently. And this guy said, not only do evil things happen, but evil things happen because God makes them happen. It's not just that he allows them to happen. Even the murder, even the rape, even child abuse happens because God wants it to happen. Does that sound like the God of the Bible to you? This guy is a famous preacher. He's on the radio all the time. And that's his position. And I look at it and I say, what he's presenting as God looks to me more like the devil. So that's uh, to that question. Any other questions? Yes.
Great folks standing up from staff and everybody who walked in have to keep his hand and say, God bless you, Holy Father. And he had this big book in front of him. I've been thinking of doing that at our conferences. No, no. This is just flowing for me because how about those people that died before? Okay. All right. So basically the question for those that may not have heard it is, what about those people that have never had the opportunity? She grew up uh, basically with communism closing in. Yes. So many things, but too many things. If you talk about government official in a negative way, somebody snitch on you, you go to jail, no questions asked, or if you talk publicly about it. Okay. So where she grew up, if you publicly talk about God or talk down about government officials, you can go to jail. Sound familiar? Do you know that we just had a guy that got convicted for nothing more than a meme on the internet that was against Hillary Clinton? Do you know that he's facing 13 years in prison for making fun of a government official? We're already there. Communism is already in this country. It hasn't completely stomped its boot down on our neck, but it's already here. So back to your question. You were under that kind of tyranny. Do you think, and I'm, I'm just asking you to consider this, do you think that your opportunity to leave that and come here and hear the gospel might have been part of God's plan? Because I, I remember clearly the 10-year-old little girl find myself to sleep one night and ask God, if you are real, reveal yourself to me. But it took many years before that happened. I God may wait, but he's never late. Okay. Well, when I was five years old, I went out in the sheep pasture and prayed that God would speak to me. And he heard that prayer. He just waited about 20 years to do it. Actually, about 10 years. All right, so back to her question. What about those people that have never heard? As her case illustrates, if there is any way for you to hear and your soul is receptive to the truth, God is either going to get the answer to you or he's going to get you to the answer. There are three levels of accountability. Number one, creation. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, no human being is without the ability to view creation. Paul says that the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, so that they are without excuse, because not only did God reveal it to them, He revealed it in them. That's just creation. Okay? When people look at creation, and I believe every soul, Scripture I think supports this, that every soul comes to a point of a consciousness of God. Usually early in life. Children, very God conscious. That's why going to India is something that Nan loves because she'll be crowded with a thousand children that are all God conscious. And they're very, very receptive, excuse me, to the truth. So God consciousness plus creation if that person is receptive at that point, God will get the gospel to them. Secondly, conscience. 
Creation's Romans chapter 1. Conscience is Romans chapter 2. Every member of the human race has a conscience. Paul says that the conscience performs the work of the law within the soul of the unbeliever. What is the work of the law? The work of the law is to tell you, you are lost and in need of a Savior. When you combine the evidence of creation with the conviction of conscience, every single member of the human race has to say either yes or no. Either I acknowledge that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. There's a God somewhere, as you said, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. God is going to respond and answer that. Third, the canon. Not the big booming kind. We're talking about the canon of Scripture. Those three things leave every member of the human race without excuse. Because anyone who responds to this one is going to be affected here. Anybody who responds to that one is ultimately going to get to the truth. I'll tell you a story. This is how God works. I went to school as a Bible college student with a girl from China. She had come out of China at a time when you couldn't get out of China. This was back in the 70s, early 70s. Her family were typical idol worshipers. They had a little closet in their house, and you would go and open the doors of the closet. There would be little wooden images on shelves, and these were their gods. And they would pray each day. The little girl was taught to kneel down and pray to the gods in the closet, and then they'd shut the door, and their religious activity was done. This little girl one time was praying to the idols, and the thought came into her mind, I know who made these idols. I know the shop down the street where my parents bought these idols that somebody carved. I want to know the God who made me. Within a week, this is the middle of China. Knock on the door. Her mother goes to the door and there's a white guy. You don't realize how you stand out until you're in China. Nan and I have been in places in China where no one spoke a word of English and there's no other white face within 100 miles. You really stand out. So here is this guy. But amazingly, he spoke Chinese. She said, what do you want? He said, I'm looking for a group. She said, who are you? He said, I'm a missionary. This group that I'm looking for is a group of Christians that meet in this area. What is a Christian, she asked. He said, I'll be happy to tell you. She invites him in, prepares tea. They sit there over tea, and she and her daughter both come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through the missionary that just happened to be there within the week of the little girl saying, I want to know the God who made me. And they were able to smuggle that little girl out of China, and she ended up in my Bible college to tell her story. God has no problem. The problem is with our lack of trust and lack of understanding. No one will go to hell without having full knowledge and opportunity to make a decision for Jesus Christ. If you want a little added information, get a book by, I think the guy's name was Larry Richards. The name of the book is Eternity in Their Hearts. God has planted, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, eternity in the hearts of every member of the human race. And when you read the book, Eternity in Their Hearts, 
He traveled as a missionary all over the world, and he found in every single culture he went to traces and evidence of biblical truth that had been with that particular tribal group or village group or whoever since who knows when. People think of Africa, it used to be called the Dark Continent. It was the center of evangelism in the second century. Africa. People think of China being the dark place in the 6th century. They dug up the Shanfu tablets from the 6th century in China, and it told of a great revival where people were turning to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in the 6th century. We think people have never heard because we haven't heard of all the times that people have heard. It happens over and over and over. Paul said by the end of his ministry that the gospel had gone out to the entire world. There are records of missionaries that went out in the early church by the thousands, tens of thousands, all over the world. Thomas died on the east side of India. Get a map and look at how far it is from Israel to the east side of India and all the points in between that he touched. And he was only one. So the gospel was in India. I met a man in India who took me into his house and unrolled a roll of paper that went about as far as from here to the middle of the room. And it had the name of every single father, head of household for 1,500 years. And he said every single one of them was a believer in Jesus Christ. 1,500 years. How far back can you think in your family history? So. I hope that answers the question. Listen, God wants people to come to him in faith more than you and I do. He's not going to overlook anyone. And, I mean, even in uh, Pakistan today, there are people who are coming to Christ just through dreams. I know a lot of people discount it, but I've seen too much evidence of it. People who are suddenly having an angel, you know, in, in Islam, angels are looked on very, very highly. And if you have a vision of an angel or a dream of an angel, and that angel shares the gospel with you, you're going to believe it. And it's happening all over. Fassel would be able to verify that for many people. All right. Any others? We're almost done. Last call. Yes. Do you think it happens immediately afterwards? Like what's happening during those seven years before we come back to Christ? <clears throat> We're not really told. Some people suggest that the Bema seat will take the whole time. Um, from chapter four and chapter five, it doesn't look like that to me. I think probably we face the Bema. This is just my own personal opinion. There's no scripture that holds it but I think we'll face the beam as soon as we enter his presence. It's over and done. Human goods gone. Any reward coming is given and, uh, and it's all over. Yes. Because the friends of the bridegroom were invited. Those the Jews went from the tribulation. Uh, friends of the bridegroom, John was the one that used the term the friends of the bridegroom, and I take that to indicate the Jewish believers from Old Testament as well as tribulation are going to be friends of the bridegroom. 
interestingly, in Matthew 22, which we just read, where Jesus, uh, I think it's, no, I'm sorry, it's in the book of Revelation. Blessed are the, those that are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, you're not invited. Did you know that? You're not invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You're the main person in the wedding supper. You're the bride. You don't invite a bride to a wedding. Those who are invited are believers from the Old Testament and the tribulation. Sorry? When and where? Uh, you know, there are people that argue that it's going to take place in heaven. I'm with you. I think it's the introductory event of the kingdom. Uh, some suggest that it'll last for seven years because a typical wedding feast was a week. So there are even some that suggest that it'll be, it's going to go on throughout the entire duration of the millennium. But seven years is good enough for me. Any others? Going once, going twice. Some of you are looking at your watch. You're wondering, have I got time for a nap? I think you do. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your wonderful people. Each and every one of them is precious in your sight. You have a plan for each, and your spirit will lead us and enable us if only we surrender to you. Father, help us to live humble and surrendered lives. Help us to live obedient lives. Our time here is so short. Let us not waste it. Help us to live up to the call that you have placed on our life. Help us to say thank you to our Savior for all that he has done for us by living our lives according to his perfect plan. Bless your people as they go their way. Keep people safe on the roads. Uh, bring us back tomorrow with uh, eager hearts to hear and learn more of your word. We thank you and we praise you. Uh, you are amazing. You are astounding. Uh, if only we could love you more and appreciate more what you have done for us. Uh, bring us to that point, we do pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.